This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton. I am your host today for News Talk t- uh, Today. News Talk Today. Uh, Got to tell you, I have planned to be here all this week. And then I had what you would call a bad weekend. Started Friday morning when my daughter left for school and said, uh, came back in the door and said, hey, mom, where's the car? And for the second time in four months, a car was stolen out of our driveway. And then as importantly, in terms of me coming to work Monday, Tuesday, for News Talk today, I had, I'd love to say, a major incident, but um, it really wasn't. It's turned into one. It was a, a embarrassing stumble at a half-step sidewalk, and uh, I have been out of commission uh, all on crutches uh, for the last, well, since Saturday at lunch when it happened. Had to get some x-rays, had to get an ultrasound. Turns out nothing is is broken in a major way, some tiny chips on the bone, and we'll need uh, some repair of tendons and ligaments through (laughs) physiotherapy. Uh, I'm at the point where you might as well laugh instead of cry because, honestly, it's, it's in the grand scheme of things, no one has died. Uh, the car can be replaced, and hopefully I will not be walking like a 200-year-old uh, lady for too much longer. But I did want to start the show. I know it's a topic so many people have done, talking about incident number one, which was the theft of our car. And joining me to do that is my friend Mark Mendelson, who's the Bell Media Crime Specialist, a former homicide detective, and the person that I text now twice when my car gets stolen. Mark, thanks for joining News Talk today. Good afternoon, Deb. Sounds like you're just full of good news. Huh? <laughs> well, and I, as I said, I did reach out to you just uh, looking for some support. And again, I know people are talking about this all the time. Uh, I will say uh, both cars were Lexus. We did ask Lexus Canada uh, on Friday morning if they would come on the show this week. I, I did anticipate, as I said, being here on Monday, but uh, we, they've not gotten back to us. I did want to talk to them about the fact that Lexus does seem to be in that top 10 list of cars that are more st- most stolen. There's a couple of pickups in that list throughout Canada. There is the uh, Honda uh, CRV, uh, uh, the Toyota Highlander four door, four wheel drive. There's there's a, a dozen or so cars that seem to be repeatedly stolen nationally. Lexus usually number one or two or three, depending on the province or the neighborhood. We actually, knowing that, did what we thought, Mark, was the right thing. I chatted with you. I chatted with the police officer who came back in June when the car was stolen. I chatted with him again on Friday, different police officer. It's really discouraging to know what to do. We spent $1,000 because Lexus said this was a good solution to buy this additional fob that would kill the engine because the two fobs work against each other. All it did, Mark was slow them down. It didn't prevent my car from going to wherever it is Wednesday of this week already. Well, Deb, you know what? It's technology. And as we've seen uh, through cybercrime and hacking and things of that nature is, uh, you know, criminals uh, are on top of, uh, you know, emerging technology and they are always in the business of trying to defeat technology and security systems. And that includes cars. I mean, and, you know, I I know that uh, Lexus, you know, did not get back to you, nor did the others, but, but there's a whole host of manufacturers out there that are 
trying their best, I guess, to, to keep up with the security technology and, and to sort of thwart these criminals. But th- there's there's a lot of money to be made in this business. Yeah, I mean, we somebody told us to, you know, put an air tag. But uh, the police officer told me on Friday that even if you hide an air tag, they're now checking with their own phones and they're able to, to find the air tag on your vehicle, even though it's your air tag, not them. We had a tracker on the first vehicle that was stolen. They pulled over three blocks away and disabled it. It was the last known location. And when my husband, you know, jogged over to see if it, by chance, fingers crossed, the car was there, of course it was gone. They had just pulled over long enough to disable it. So what do you do, Mark? Well, oh God, it's it's, it's the magical question. I mean, I, I think that what you have to do, and you mentioned it earlier on, that the, the fob that uh, you got by recommendation of, of Lexus, uh, slowed them down. And I think that's one of the uh, only things that a consumer and a car owner can do right now is to make things difficult, to make that particular vehicle unattractive to steal because of the amount of time that they're going to have to spend on it. Having said that, and you and I have talked about this privately, uh, my neighbor uh, had his uh, his uh, uh, Toyota high-end pickup truck. He had two of them stolen in three months. And the second time he put uh, one of these sort of club type uh, instruments on the steering wheel and another different kind of locking device on on the brake and of course all he could see from his uh, security video in the morning when he realized truck number two was gone is that it took them a half an hour as they sawed through everything so it's really really difficult i mean you know i don't even know where to begin there's such a demand for these vehicles uh both here in north america and and in 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 west africa certainly nigeria we have seen is a is a big post for uh, for these vehicles it's a short trip to montreal and halifax into a container and on a ship and uh you know they don't care uh in in, in west africa whether the license plates whether the ontario plates are still on the vehicle we've seen we've seen evidence of that in used car lots in lagos um, with Ontario plates on there. There's just such a high demand now. And, you know, criminals look at it. It's sort of under the cover of darkness. Nobody's going to get hurt. What's the real risk? They're not robbing banks or drugstores. Uh, they're going in the middle of the night and doing this. And, the, you know, it, it's just too attractive. Yeah, and I'm getting all kinds of texts on the text board with ideas and thank you for them. Keep them coming. But I will say I'll just grab two or three that we've already used. So the club, actually, uh, we had not used because our neighbor had them saw through it. Uh, Somebody else said, um, don't you have security cameras by now? Well, Mark, as you know, I sent you a beautiful film of the the entire thing clearly taking place. But the individuals, there were two of them this time who stole our vehicle, were covered with just barely their eyes showing. So, you know, beautiful footage. Yes, we ha- we have that. Um, we also have a, a woman who lives in our neighborhood. Thank you for, uh, she's, she has stopped me on the street before and told me how much she enjoys listening to News Talk 1010 uh, and the iHeartRadio Network. But she said her neighbor, uh, sorry, someone in the neighborhood just had them drill a hole into the garage and open the garage door to steal a Range Rover. So, yeah. like, I, I love all these suggestions. I got to tell you, I've tried most of them, still didn't work. And it sounds like others that, that friends and neighbors have tried don't work either. 
Yeah, and that's a problem. It's a problem for police right now. I mean, certainly in the GTA, there's been a a tremendous amount of money that's been put into uh, uh, sort of a joint forces investigation, which is bringing together Peel and Toronto, York and Durham, sort of where there's a huge concentration of these thefts. And yes, arrests have been made. And what's interesting about the arrests is, you know, they're, they're getting the people who are stealing the cars and they're getting the people who are just moving the cars from A to B, but they haven't certainly got to the top of that pyramid yet and listen let's face it this is organized crime textbook i mean there are a lot of people making a lot of money so arresting these people that are stealing the cars only gets you you know to 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 the first leg of the investigation and you look at the age of some of these people that are getting arrested as well they're young and they're making quick money uh taking very very little risk but they're walking around with their laptop or their little computer and they're, they're picking the houses um, you know, they're going to the neighborhoods where they know these vehicles are. In some cases, there has been suggestions. They have connections within the dealerships so that, you know, you pick up your brand new vehicle, your brand new high end vehicle, and somebody drops a dime on the bad guys and says, hey, you know, Deb's coming home with a new car. And here's the registered address. It's 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 that it's that simple in, in, in many respects. So it's going to take time for for all of these sort of the heads of these of these different organizations to be arrested and charged and i don't you know do you ever stop it i don't know technology hasn't been keeping up with it and uh you know i mean what you what you can do as an as an individual is only only take the most reasonable precautions available like you said the outdoor cameras um you know the locking systems for steering wheels and brake pedals uh putting your vehicle in the drive and then parking your junker vehicle in behind it so they have to actually move or, or you know move two vehicles that takes up time that makes noise that makes your house unattractive and your vehicle unattractive so these are the only real safety precautions that are out there at this point um you know the trackers the little ones yes a, a lot of phones will pick that up mark gotta uh, fly sir, sir. thank you as yep. always for supporting me and for helping us out on news talk today It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. Um, I And what is happening today? Geez, I lost my train of thought here. What's happening today for the third week in a row is the inquiry in Ottawa into whether the federal government were justified when they invoked the Emergencies Act. And as I try to do every day at this time or near this time, we are going to chat with a journalist who has been following what's happening on a day-to-day basis really carefully and give us an update of what happened since since the inquiry started this morning. Today, we're going to talk with Judy Trin, correspondent for CTV National News. Judy, welcome back to News Talk Today. Good afternoon, Deb. So what happened this morning uh, in testimony in the inquiry? Well, you know what is very interesting is that uh, today we're kind of getting in the weeds uh, with two uh, police uh, officers who were responsible for the uh, operation. But the thing that is grabbing headlines is whether or not Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones will appear at this commission. As you know, Deb, uh, yesterday they filed, the province filed a court uh, application saying that they are going to fight the summons. They were summoned last week to appear uh, before this commission, and they have said no. And once again this morning, uh, 
Ford repeated a familiar refrain that this is a policing matter, not a political matter. It's a federal inquiry and that they are going to claim parliamentary privilege and that this is a constitutional right that should be protected since the legislature is sitting and there's no reason why he, the premier and uh, his minister who was uh, Solicitor General at the time, Sylvia Jones, should be appearing before this commission. But Deb, if I can tell you how important it is for them to appear, uh, what this uh, commission has heard time and time again is that the province, uh, the provincial leaders were not at the table with the local mayor, with the federal leadership. So why were they missing from those meetings? We know that uh, the convoy rolled into Ottawa on January 28th, uh, that uh, Sylvia Jones was uh, requested to be part of meetings as well as the premier, but declined. We do know that on February 5th, a photo emerged on Facebook of the premier snowmobiling in Muskoka. So once again, why did he not place that importance in what was happening, the occupation in Ottawa? Because what police have said, what officials have said, is that it appears that once there was provincial involvement, it could it moved things much faster, right? And perhaps we may not have required a uh, federal state of emergency if the province had acted sooner. So why was that? That's why their input is needed. And if they have not been part of the discussions, they are going to court on um, on uh, November 1st to argue against appearing. Uh, but if they do agree to appear and they lose that uh, application, uh, they will have to appear before the commission on February 10th. Deb. We're talking to Judy Trin, who's correspondent for CTV National News, and she's she's just, I think we'll come back to some of the testimony you heard this morning, Judy, but in the meantime, talking about uh, what has been very topical in the last couple of days, why uh, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, and his former Solicitor General, now Minister of Health, Sylvia Jones, has not appeared. Of course, it was also a topic of question period in the Ontario legislature this afternoon, Let's uh, this morning, actually. Let's hear what the Premier had to say in uh, response to Judy's question that she's asking. This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act. From day one, Mr. Speaker, for Ontario, this was a a policing matter. It was not a political matter. And the opposition knows, Mr. Speaker, politicians don't direct the police. Uh, Premier Doug Ford went on to say this. Top officials from the OPP that were running the operation in conjunction with the municipal police agencies and the RCMP are testifying at the committee. So, Judy, I got to say, you said, why wouldn't he come? Well, the answer to me is it is a policing matter. And the failure of the police, which is what I truly believe will be part of the uh, end of this report, is not a political matter, as the premier said. You know, and that is an opinion uh, many people will hold. But uh, at the same time, uh, Sylvia Jones is on the record saying that, you know, she has sent police resources to Ottawa, sufficient police resources. uh, But there is discrepancy. Uh, We have heard from uh, local leaders that the numbers that the province was sending did not actually bear out on the ground. So where were those numbers coming from? So basic questions like that, that a political leader needs to answer. So 
you know, the point of uh, parliamentary privilege is very important, and it cannot be taken lightly. But the fact of the matter is that the prime minister is testifying. So are members of his cabinet. They have waived their rights for parliamentary privilege to participate in this. So they can be part of this discussion, uh, this commission, and to be held accountable. I think ultimately that is what this is about, right? In the public sphere, when you have public officials, when you have the premier and you have the solicitor general answering questions, that is what a politician is supposed to do, an elected official. They are supposed to be accountable to the public. And this is a venue in which they can demonstrate their willingness to do that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously you and I are going to disagree on this, Judy. Um, I I would say that those questions you asked about the resources are operational discussions that would take place, operational decisions that are not related to the politicians. And to the to the, your point on the federal government, well, that's the entire crux of this inquiry. What did they know? What did they believe? What did they uh, use as their backup for the decision? That's the full inquiry, their decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. It was a federal decision. It is a federal piece of legislation, and it is a mandated inquiry into that very decision. But I do want to go on in terms of some of the testimony, because part of the the policing issue is that it is quite astounding to me that there appears to have been testimony that suggests that we had such varying degrees of intelligence being fed into the police. And that, to me, is both shocking, but also very, very concerning. Absolutely. That stood out for me, too, as well, Deb. I will tell you that uh, the OPP was putting out what are known as Hendon reports. And uh, so since the start of the pandemic, they were monitoring um, public discontent and how that could lead to radicalization. So these reports were, they were very familiar with the uh, the issues, the, the, it, the individuals who were uh, very critical. However, it turned out that Ottawa police did not use the Hennon reports in a lot of their operational planning. They say they did, but under cross-examination, Steve Bell actually admitted that he did not read uh, the Hennon report until January 27th. So he was the deputy chief in charge of information, intelligence, and uh, investigation. So his information that he gathers is supposed to inform form the police operation, the plan that they put in place to deal with the protesters. And he said that while he didn't read the OPP uh, Hendon report until January 27th, one day before the truckers started rolling into town. Now, what the intelligence that he was getting was that these truckers, as they were coming from all across the country, were law-abiding citizens. And one of the things that stood out for me was that there was an There appears to be an over-reliance on the internal Ottawa police intelligence. The internal Ottawa police intelligence refers to this group. uh, It speaks very differently about the protesters uh, and perhaps more in sympathetic terms. It refers to them as um, as middle class, uh, primarily middle class. It refers to these individuals as having a widespread support or growing support uh, in terms of their viewpoints on anti-vaccine mandates. 
you know, at that point, it, it, the Canadian popula- population was mostly in favor of vaccine mandates and restrictions in order to control the spread of COVID-19. So that was very interesting. So they had taken this approach. At the same time, they had prepared for what they thought was going to be a January 6th event. That would be the Capitol riots in Washington, D.C. So they were expecting perhaps a uh, storming of Parliament. But that didn't materialize. They had public order officers. So they had officers from Durham Police, from York Police, from Toronto, riot police, ready to move in. Judy, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to cut you off there. I could talk about this for a long time, but we have a break coming up. Judy Trin, CTV National News Correspondent, we thank you for your time and your insight into this morning's testimony. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today. So back at the end of August, my family took its first uh, flying vacation, got on an airplane, headed to London for a few days. Girls had never been out of North America, and so we thought it was a a good time to take them. They're 8 and 14 and uh, spent a wonderful week in London, Uh, had lots of really wonderful experiences and happy memories and All was smooth, even though we flew out of Pearson and landed at Heathrow. Uh, But we did think about all of the issues that were happening in the summer around air travel. And so one of the things we did is that three of us did carry-on luggage, and we packed one suitcase for all of us that we checked, but I left a bunch of room in it. And the things that were in it were things that we didn't have to have, that we could have survived the week without, you know, some extra shoes and a coat that I wasn't sure we'd need for each of us. But nonetheless, we thought we will be super safe given all the lost baggage and delayed baggage. We'll do carry on, but we would take this. And then the notion would be if it arrived in London, we'd have a few extra things and Maybe the girls and I could do a little bit of shopping and put stuff in. So it turns out, if I had known about what this next guest that's joining us does, I could have made money in that empty suitcase. Joining us is Shelby Fernan, who's the CEO and co-founder of Fly and Fetch, an Edmonton-based startup. Welcome to News Talk Today, Shelby. Hi, Dav. Happy to be here. So tell us about your startup business out of Edmonton. You actually would have paid me to take someone else's possessions if they wanted to send it to England instead of paying for FedEx or DHL or whatever company you use for transatlantic travel of packages. Um, yes, you're right with that. So Fly and Fetch is a modern shipping company, and people always say that we're like Uber for international shipping. So instead of using traditional air cargo, we buy travelers' luggage space, and then we fill it up with packages, and then they deliver that. And, and with doing that, we're able to make international shipping cheaper and faster. And so what what would be a typical, if you had a package that needed to go to London and you had paid for the room in my checked bag, what likely would have been uh, the amount of money that I could have made on that? Yes, yeah, so it mostly depends on the destination, but it could go up to 1400 for a round-trip flight. 
Interesting. So depending on where you're going, a good chunk of your flight might get covered just by saving some room in your suitcase. Yes, absolutely. And um, our our conversation with our travelers is that it depends on how much space you have and and where de- with what destination you're going. So it, it varies on that. But yeah, we could pay with, within 50 to 100 percent of the flight ticket. So uh, we're going to, because I have a whole bunch of questions that I can't wait to ask you, Shelby, but after the break, we are going to open up the phone lines, 1-855-633-1010 and text at 71010 to see, would you actually get on board Shelby's company and fill your empty suitcase uh, with someone else's packages? So let's start with the big question for me, which is, how is this legal? Because I thought... I know it hasn't been asked of me lately, but I thought there was a very clear sort of sign and rule at airports that you should have packed your own bags and you should know what is in your own bags. Yes, and uh, this is a very common question that is asked towards us. Um, so all of the packages that a travel brings are unsealed. And actually, we, uh, we require all our travelers to mandatorily inspect everything that's inside their luggage space because they will be asked that same exact question in the airport if they pack and they know what's inside. So ultimately, before travel leaves an airport or even go to the airport, they already know and they're the ones who seal um, the, the box. We, we usually put it, put it in a box. And how do you declare at the other end what you're bringing in? Do you have to declare that it's personal property, which in fact it isn't? Yes, so we follow all customs rules and um, we pay the fees that are necessary with regards to the packages that are being brought. So it really varies depending on what's inside the the, the the luggages. But before it gets to our travelers, we already know what those are and that's part of our process. And what kind of vetting do you do for people who want, so not the not the travelers, but the people who want to send through your system, what kind of vetting do you do to make sure that it is all above board? I mean, you see it visually, but how do we know it's not stolen property or something of that nature? Yeah, so right now we're creating a technology that improves the vetting of our senders. Um, most of them most of it involves with ID identification and um, just verification and all of that uh, as well. But right now what we're doing is just really vetting on the items that they're, they're, they're sending with us. We're talking to Shelby Fernan, who's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Fly and Fetch, which will uh, pay for unused space in your checked bag. Or if, in fact, you decide, like me this summer, you want to take only carry-on luggage, then you actually take a suitcase full of products that uh, her company has gathered from someone who wants to send, I guess, less expensively is sort of your your proposition for them to a destination uh, overseas. So what would it cost in a general sense? Because I realize different size packages, different weight, et cetera. But generally speaking, what would the cost be to use you as opposed to any of the uh, transatlantic options, the so-called sort of traditional forms of sending Christmas packages or gifts or whatever the case may be? Yeah, so... We are, we are comparable to expedited shipments, so most of our shipping actually goes from and to the Philippines because I'm Filipino myself, and that's how the idea started. And we charge $50 per kilogram, and that's comparable to around $200 to $300 per kilogram for other couriers. And we're two times faster, so in, in three days, it arrives 
uh, in, in the other country. And what do you provide in terms of protection uh, for theft or not getting there, et cetera? Yeah, so we, we do offer an optional coverage fee if our customers want to purchase the, the, the like an additional protection for their package. But generally speaking, I mean, you could pay me and I just take off with it. I decide what you've what you've put in my suitcase, given me to a certain extent as, uh, you know, as my own property. Uh, I just decide I'm not going to give it to your employee at the other end. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a probable case. And um, we really do that by doing a lot of vetting interview for our travelers. We plan our, our, our shipments ahead of time and, and we have enough time to sort of like vet our travelers and, and get enough information with regards to them. So we do have a verification tool in our website as well that verifies all of our travelers' identity. Um, and just to let you know, we have more than a thousand packages and it was we had zero theft and zero damages on, on, on the case of it. So you've you've already shipped a thousand packages and zero theft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, zero and zero damages. Wow, uh, this, we're talking to Sh- uh, Shelby Fernan, who's the CEO and co-founder of Fly and Fetch, which is essentially I think it's calling you're calling it like crowd shipping as opposed to crowdsourcing. Crowd shipping, where you match up uh, an individual who wants to send something to family or friends, or do you do business as well? Yes, we're we're trying to go into business and and working with. Um, how that works in customs as well. So, yeah. Okay. And and it can come back as well. So if someone who is in, in my case, was in London and wanted to send something uh, to, say, Toronto, they could do that as well? Yes. So we prefer a round-trip uh, traveler. But, I mean, it's your destination, your starting destination doesn't have to be Canada? So right now we're we're very selective of like where the location is, but you need to go like right now most of our of our market is Canada and going in and out of Canada. Okay, so interesting idea. Coming up after the break, I want to take your calls one eight five five six three three ten ten. Would you use Shelby's business? Are you comfortable with this? Or like a lot of our texters, are you thinking this sounds like it's just not a hundred percent above board? It's not the first mm-hmm. app to do this, by the way. I will say others have tried. They haven't always been successful. But obviously, Shelby's answered a number of the questions I had. And I want to ask you: Are you thinking? that you'd like to hook up with Fly and Fetch and make a little extra cash to pay for your trip. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. (coughs) It's News Talk Today. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today. And I want to get your take on an interview I just did uh, before the break with a woman named Shelby Fernan, CEO and co-founder of Fly and Fetch, which is an Edmonton-based startup company that does what is being called crowd shipping. And I'll explain a little bit. But in the meantime, give us a shout, 1-855-633-1010 or text at 71010. Is this something you would do? Here's the concept. You essentially 
initially say I'm headed to, in my case, I said we headed to London, England at the end of the summer. I am taking a separate piece of luggage with a whole bunch of room because I'm worried about it not getting there. And Shelby's Shelby's company would say to you, hey, I've got a package that someone wants to send to London. I will pay you up to around $1,400, depending on the size of the package, depending on uh, the location that it needs to go, which is a pretty good piece of money to defray what our expensive travel costs these days. Would you do it? 1-855-633-1010. So, of course, a lot of texters asked the question I was asking in, the, in my mind, and I asked Shelby, Shelby, is this legal? So all of the packages that a traveler brings are unsealed. And actually, we uh, we require all our travelers to mandatorily inspect everything that's inside their luggage space because they will be asked that same exact question in the airport if they pack and they know what's inside. So ultimately, before a traveler leaves an airport or even go to the airport, they already know and they're the ones who seal um, the, the box. We, we usually put it, put it in a box. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Is this something you'd consider for around a thousand bucks or fourteen hundred bucks to help defray your expenses? I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. So we did. Uh, I, I've done some digging into this, and Transport Canada and Canada Border Services agencies say that you cannot prevent. There's nothing under the law or any regulations that prevent a passenger from carrying items for other people in their checked luggage, unless, of course, it's a prohibited or legal illegal item. And so Shelby says, you get to see what's there, you get to check it out, you get to make sure there's no concerns, and then you seal the package. So you don't have to lie when you cross the border, you don't have to lie when you're coming into a country, and you can feel confident that you actually, quote, packed your own luggage and know what's in it. But let me know what you think. one 855 Let's go to Jill in Ottawa. Jill, would you do this? I wouldn't do it. I I would be very worried and concerned. I, I was just listening to your secondary comments the last few minutes. But regardless of you getting to see and look, you don't want to destroy a product. I mean, I've seen those border controls. What's that show where they have dogs that sniff things at the airports? What's to What's to stop someone from dismantling a product and concealing something illegal within inside the product, sealing it all back up? And you can't destroy the product and check it out. The next thing you know, you've gone to this other city and there's something, you know, a dog is going to sense something. And the next thing you know, you're pulled aside and lo and behold, they might find something concealed within the actual product. See, Jill, I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of with you, and I'm going to tell a a little secret here, which is that I am a big fan of the Bridget Jones movies. I'm showing maybe my age and my my silliness. I don't know. But this weekend, if you've been listening to the show, I I started it off by saying I had an unfortunate little accident, so it was laid up with my leg up, and I watched both one and two Bridget Jones, and exactly that happens. She takes something for a friend. It looks like it's an artifact, and of course, dogs sniff, and there's drugs in it, and she ends up in a Thailand prison. So I'm with you, Jill. Yeah, sharing her bra with all the ladies. Uh, see, there you I go. Say that. We're, we're kindred spirits. <laughs> Thanks for the call. one 855 We're talking about the notion of being paid, or if you want to do this yourself, you pay for the pleasure of sending something relatively inexpensively uh, with someone else who's going to... 
Whatever country you want to send your package. Maybe it's a Christmas gift coming up. Maybe it's a birthday gift for family who live in another country. Would you use this product? Kevin, let's uh, go to you here in Toronto. Kevin, would you use it? Go ahead, Kevin. Hello. No, I don't think I would use it, but I I believe, I I could be wrong here, but uh, as a Nexus cardholder, I understand we're not allowed to take items for third parties. I don't know whether you're uh, whether those people have considered that or not. Yeah, I don't know. I, I did read, as I said, um, what the spokesperson for CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency, said, that basically, unless it's an illegal or prohibited item, there's nothing to prevent you by law or regulation from taking something for someone else. I don't know about Nexus, and it's certainly not something that they flagged. They also said that um, you could, if you do this often enough, be considered a, quote, commercial carrier, and therefore, just like other commercial uh, carriers, you'd have to leave whatever it is you brought into the country with customs until they were fully inspected and cleared customs, which is the case when we order things from cross-border at Christmas time is the only time I've really done that. So good point, Kevin, but it, they didn't raise it, so I don't know if that's the case. Thanks for the call. one 855 or 71010-71010. Would you, in fact do this? Would you either hire this company because it's less expensive, or would you consider making an extra buck by putting someone else's goods into your suitcase? Give me a shout and let me know. I will say I am skeptical about this. Uh, She did say that a good chunk of her business, she's Filipino, and a good chunk of her business is sort of word of mouth in her Filipino community. And a lot of the packages go from points here in Canada to the Philippines. And so it started out as the way you might do something, which is to say, hey, I've got family here. I want to send this birthday gift. Do you mind putting in your luggage? The difference, of course, is you're doing that with a friend versus a stranger, and you're actually paying. If I ask someone to take something for me, I'm not exchanging money for uh, the the privilege of uh, me getting to use their empty suitcase or part of their empty suitcase to send a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. One. 855-633-1010 or text at 710. 10. I missed a 10. Joan in Toronto, would you do this? Have you done this? Well, I heard about this. Uh, CBC had an article or something about it. I'm flying to Australia and I'm going business class and I'm allowed two bags. So I... I've signed up for it. I haven't heard anything back um, because, yeah, I think it's not a bad idea. I do have some concerns about, you know, what the product is that you're taking in and what is the procedure of how you get it to whomever it's going to. So what makes Um, it attractive for you, Joan? Simply that you can make some cash and defray your expenses? It's a pretty good reason. um, (laughs) It's a long way to go, and I'm really splurging by going on business class. Uh, and I thought, you know, if I can get a big chunk of anything, that might not be so bad. It's just another bag, and I'm not bringing two bags. I'm allowed two bags. So, Well, Joan, Joan we look forward to maybe hearing when you return uh, how it all worked out. 
Thanks so much for those calls. Coming up after the break, it is that weekly time for something we call on News Talk Today, The War Room, where we take three of our pundits and experts in politics and talk about the things that have been happening politically and in current events throughout the week. Of course, we'll be talking inquiry because who's not talking inquiry when it comes to current events here in Canada these days? I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. It is that time for The War Room. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for this week. And joining us to in The War Room to talk about today's topics and the topics we've all been talking about this week, Sharon Carr, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Bill Morneau, Thomas Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Welcome to News Talk Today, my friends. Hey, Deb. Hey. All right, so let's start with inflation news. Today, obviously, we've had the sixth hike in uh, interest rates over the past number of months. We're now at 3.75%. The bank says it's getting close to the end, but the Bank of Canada is not yet done. Earlier this week, we heard NDP leader Jagmeet Singh talk about the fact that uh, he said, in fact, on, on CTV's question period, we absolutely need to combat inflation. But if the Bank of Canada's approach has nothing to do with the root causes of inflation, and it's only going to cause pains for Canadians, then we've got to question why is that approach they're taking when there's no evidence for that approach. Of course, nothing new here. This isn't the first criticism we've heard of the Bank of Canada and how it works within our democracy and our fiscal and economic uh, system. We heard this from Pierre Polyev some time ago. He said he would fire Tiff Mecklem if he became uh, prime minister. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Thomas. What's your thought on all of this? Is the Bank of Canada in jeopardy? Uh, are we doing the right thing? Is this just all political hay from politicians who don't have actual answers into inflation? Some of the votes of the NDP are in danger, and they're worried about what we used to lovingly call orange-blue switchers. You know, we have, there's a whole category of voters that would never give the Liberals a second chance. They'll always stick with either the NDP or the Conservatives, depending on which one gives the better impression of being able to stick it to your boss. Usually, that's the NDP, close to the unions, close to workers, close to working families. That's always been their branding. But now, all of a sudden, Pierre Poiliev is talking a very similar game, and he's starting to attract some people who would traditionally vote for the NDP. So Jagmeet is doing a little bit of catch-up, although his his letter was very well-written, and it was quite thoughtful, and certainly not the type of you know shot in the dark that we had from Poiliev, where he just simply said, yeah, I'm going to fire this guy, Tiff Macklem. But again, it is a little bit of political catch-up, but of course, at the same time, he understands that the average working Canadian family is suffering right now. The cost of food is going through the roof. The cost of putting gas in the car is going through the roof, and people are really strapped. The average family in Canada, this is an actual statistic, the average family does not have more than two weeks pay in the bank, and a lot of them are suffering right now. 
Sharon Carr, you have worked for a federal finance minister. You know what it's like to put together a budget, to stick to that budget uh, on behalf of the country. What's your thought on this? I think it's a bit challenging to see all this rhetoric come out about, I, I would say it's like a full on frontal assault on the Bank of Canada. And listen, there's there's criticism that can be made to the bank. But I actually find this this rhetoric that's now apparently coming from people from different political strikes that the bank shouldn't have increased rates to be a bit disingenuous. There is a reason why we're in inflation. I think everyone forgets that we just went through a pandemic where there was a lot of money that was pushed into the economy to make sure that people could survive. Now, Inflation is definitely hitting people hard. It's not that it's not there. I just think that people are being a bit naive around in, in, increasing interest rates are a blunt tool to help cool the market down. And that is exactly what it is doing. There's definitely going to be discomfort in the process, but it's, I would personally like to see there be more fiscal policy changes here too. This is not a purely, um, we can't change society and economy purely just by monetary policy. The government, if they really want to show that they um, are taking this just as seriously as the bank is with their interest rate hikes, they truly need to start looking at whether or not they curtail some of their spending. Listen, that's music to my ears, uh, Tim. <laughs> Tim Power. Uh, I mean, I love I love restraint when it comes to spending. Now, Jugmeet Singh is also calling on the federal liberals to expand the employment insurance program. So, isn't that more spending? It could be. I mean, look, uh, so Pierre does videos, Jugmeet does long letters. They're still doing the same thing, uh, as Tom said. They're focusing on trying to generate some attention that they're on top of this. But you point out the right lever that Mr. Singh has, Deb. He does have a lever because he does have a supply and confidence agreement with the Liberal government to try and impact public policy. And I'm with, uh, with, uh, with Sharon. More fiscal here. So, Never mind the letters, Mr. Singh. You have the power to shape where this goes. I don't necessarily agree, as uh, as as you rightly point out, Deb, with you know messing around with with EI at the moment. But uh, are you not focusing on the wrong target, Mr. Singh? Because there is another politics here, which Tom knows well, and that is internally in the NDP. I think there is still some frustration that uh, they've become a little bit more subdued in the aura of the Liberals. Yes, they've gotten dental care, and yes, that's pricey, but could Mr. Singh be doing more and focusing on the real target where he does have influence, that being Liberal government? All right, so let's move on to the topic that I think will be on this panel for at least the next four or five weeks, and that's the federal inquiry into the appropriateness of the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act back in the winter. The topic at hand these last couple of days have been whether Premier Doug Ford should, I'll ask both politically and legally, appear before the commission and or his solicitor general, former solicitor general, now minister of health, Sylvia Jones. I will put my bias on the table, guys, which is to say, I actually think politically Doug should appear before the commission. I think Mm -hmm. he would do a good job of it. And I think it would actually show some guts, which a lot of people sort of think he is predisposed to have on this topic. However, I do know it does set some legal precedents. We've all been around government enough to know that the lawyers will always give you an excuse for why the answer is no. Thomas, I'll start with you. Should he do it legally? Should he do it politically? I agree with you that Doug Ford would do a good job if he showed up. And I think that politically he's in a lot of trouble if he doesn't show up for one good and simple reason. How do you get to claim the, te- the terrain of law and order, of respect for our de- democratic institutions, of respect for the rule of law 
if a judge holding a major inquiry sends you a summons, this isn't a vague invitation, it's a, a legal document saying you have to appear. Now, does he have a legal argument? Does he have a legal leg to stand on? Nah, a wobbly one, but a legal leg nonetheless. He gets to say, and that's his key argument, you can't look at how I run my government. This is my provincial jurisdiction. It's my purview. It's my privilege and prerogative to run it as I want, and you don't get to lift up the curtain on that. He's got a bit of an argument there. But I think going back to your point initially, it comes down to whether or not he's going to look bad, and I think he's going to look very bad if he doesn't show up. Sharon, what advice would you give Doug Ford? I don't think you're in the business of giving Doug Ford advice, but what advice would you give him on this? <laughs> Listen, Doug Ford has grown on a lot of us, but I would say that um, legally I can't, I'm not a lawyer, I can't really say what he should do on a legal front. I would say from a public perception front, they just need to put him in front of there. I understand why they're not doing it. They probably, my guess is similar to during the election, they don't want him to say something that could potentially cause him an issue. But they have a majority government. It's honestly, he's shown that when you put him on the spot, he tends to have this charming, like regular Joe Schmo type of attitude about things. So I just think he needs to go. If the prime minister can be told he needs to go and all these other folks can be told they have to go. I think he should go. Now, the question is, what exactly are they afraid of? Is it of him saying something or are they hiding something? I think there's, um, we've seen the Prime Minister and Doug Ford kind of back each other up on the use of the act. But, like, let's just get him and go in front of there and kind of put an end to this. It's, it's. I think it's long overdue. Tim, I'm going to come back to you after the break. I'm speaking with Sharon Carr, Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers. They mm-hmm. are our War Room pundits today. I'll also play a clip of Doug Ford and what he said about this whole issue when we come back. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's use of the Federal Emergencies Act. From day one, Mr. Speaker, For Ontario, this was a a policing matter, it was not a political matter, and the opposition knows, Mr. Speaker, politicians don't direct the police. Staying on the story, News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today. That, of course, was the voice of Ontario Premier Doug Ford being questioned in the legislature this morning about why he and his Solicitor General are refusing to appear before the uh, inquiry in Ottawa into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. I wanted to give... uh, Sorry, we're in the war room. I forgot to say that. We are in the war room, as we are every Wednesday afternoon at this time. Joining us today, Sharon Carr, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Bill Morneau, Tom McCare, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and the gentleman who did not get to comment on whether Doug Ford and his Solicitor General should participate, Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, should he appear? I don't know who the gentleman is. I'll see if I can find him here. Uh, uh, But he should, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, Tom and Sharon have articulated some of them very well. If he doesn't, he's creating this impression that there's something to hide. Does he want that right now? You rightly talked about his ability to perform in these circumstances. I think he can perform well in these uh, these circumstances. And the third point is his uh, the clip that you played. I mean, that's that that, that that's totally wrong. It wasn't just a 
federal matter. And as Tom knows, because he has a son in policing, uh, provincial police forces do federal law enforcement work. What was Windsor if that wasn't federal law enforcement work? What is Ottawa if it's not federal enforcement work? Drugs, guns, it's all jointly done with the feds and the provinces. And that was all part and parcel of all of this. So his defense is very weak. He's going to make a bigger and deeper hole for himself, I think, if he doesn't go. The one, the one offshoot of all of this is, you know, why? So, you know, what is it he doesn't want to talk about? Does is he worried he may jeopardize his relationship with Ottawa, uh, which has been good, with the prime minister, which has been good? I really do wonder. It's a lot to step away because he's building a straw man. Uh, that has the potential to be blown all over him, and uh, not with wind, but with what else you find on cow fields. <laughs> <laughs> always, always very colorful in your language, Tim Powers. So a story caught my attention today, not so much for the facts that were in it, although I will share with uh, with our listeners and the three of you those facts, but it was a jumping off point for me to ask a question of our war room participants on the cost of democracy. So Brian Lilly, Toronto's son, wrote a column which I will tell you the younger Deb Hutton in her opposition days at Queen's Park would have been jumping for joy to have read this about the government of the day. It cost our taxpayers, our government, $356,000, give or take, for the Prime Minister and his entourage to stay, to go and stay for the Queen's funeral in England. More than some people's houses cost, even in this time of high housing costs in Canada. A huge bill. But I do wonder whether we're actually looking at these issues correctly. There is a cost to being a G7 country, to being a player on the national stage, to having a prime minister who is respected uh, for the office. I won't get into personalities. Respected for the office, a country that sits on the national stage and goes to whatever it is we're talking about. Is this actually something that we should be sucking up? Or should the, you know, the younger, more militant Deb Hutton, was she right? These are just atrocious costs and we should all pound the table and talk about it over dinner. Tom Mulcair. I think we should all lighten up. And, you know, I'm one of the people who didn't think it was that bad to see Trudeau singing in a bar, uh, you know, even though it was in a, the overall occasion was very sad and, and formal and somber. I think that that's one of the things that Trudeau does the best. He's Partner is branding around the world. I'm I'm with Deb on this one. Let's not talk about the the stuff that we always get to criticize here. It's a good image for Canada to have a younger uh, prime minister, younger than most of his uh, colleagues at the G7, and frankly, one of the most experienced heads at the table. So come on, lighten up. Of course, that's what it costs. Have you ever been to a decent hotel in London? You know that it's a couple of thousand bucks a night. And and this doesn't surprise anybody who's ever traveled. And we had a fairly large contingent of people there who were official mourners. And I at some point you know by the way deb if the young tom mulcair when i was in my 30s in opposition in quebec city had met the young deb i'm sure we would have agreed just how shocked and appalled we both are at this outrageous expense but the older tom gets to say oh come on lighten up yeah no i'm and this and this is really why i wanted to talk to you guys about it because no one remembers bev oda except that she had what a 16 dollar glass of orange juice, juice, right? So, so, and she got fired for it. And, and I, so I get all of this and yet 
Like, honestly, should we have expected them to stay in hostels? The other issue which comes into play here is is 24 Sussex. I have been, shockingly, to people who've known me for a long time, a proponent of actually spending the money to fix up 24 Sussex. My goodness, our, our head of government should stay in a respectable place where they can entertain. Sharon Carr, where are you on this? I'm I'm with you guys on this. I found I found the fact that everyone had a or not everyone like the folks the, who reacted to Brian Lilly's piece in complete shock to be a bit naive in what it one cost to send a head of a state with a large delegation. Also, during a time where I'm sure hotels hiked up prices in London, it is not cheap to travel as the head of uh, head of a country. There are so many pieces that go with it. So, like everyone needs to chill out. Like he needed to be there. It was fine. I thought that singing was a bit gauche but whatever but then when you talk about 24 sussex even during my time at finance i found it completely and absolutely mind-boggling how little appetite people had to renovating 24 sussex or any government i would say residence or building these are not this is not justin trudeau's house this is canada's house and it is any any prime minister who comes in will get that house so the fact that he can't even stay there because it's in such a decrepit state and we are so far up this, I would say, path of fear to do anything about it. The same thing has happened with the government airplanes. It's just like we are a G7 country. Let's operate one like one. And it's not like we're building castles. It's literally a house where he lives in. So, Tim Powers, I mean, Thomas and I both acknowledged we would have had a different view a while ago. I will tell you the text board does not agree with old Deb. In fact, there is a text that says young Deb is right. <laughs> Tim, Tim Powers. Uh, I mean, maybe we're just all we've we've been captured by the system. We've all been part of politics too long. What's your thought on this? Uh, nothing wrong with the folly of youth, Deb. By the way, <laughs> nothing wrong with it at all. But but look, do the opposite of that. What if he doesn't go? Can you imagine the outcry? Your text board would be more apoplectic than it is now. Yeah, it's expensive. You're talking about that sixteen dollar orange juice. Buy an orange juice at cost of the coffee shop in most British train stations. That'll cost you double that, for God's sake. So come on, get over it. I mean, it, it, it is so important for Canada to be there. And again, understand the occasion. The Queen had been with us for 70 years on the throne. We can afford to spend 300 and whatever thousand dollars it was to take over four prime ministers. Canada would look cheap, be viewed as insignificant, and not receive much respect around the world if we didn't go to the funeral or we didn't send the delegation that we did. All right. Because I loved that topic and we spent so much time, we're going to have to jam here on one last topic. Uh, Danielle Smith, three weeks, three comments. This time she says that journalism is uh, entertainment. Quick thoughts, Thomas. Is this is this like, is she out to lunch here? Is this playing well in Alberta? Is this just going to be a weekly segment? What did Danielle say this week? (laughs) Yeah, and she views politics as entertainment. She's going to have to realize now she's got a very serious job and start changing her tone, like she did on the weekend, by the way. She was reading from a teleprompter. It was much more seasoned and reasoned than what we've been getting from her. So there is hope. All right. Sharon Carr, Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers. Unfortunately, the last two don't get to comment on this topic. Thank you so much for joining me for The War Room. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. We will hopefully have you all back next week. 
Coming up after the break, we are going to talk about another federal announcement, this time on nuclear power. We're going to be joined by the head of Ontario Power Generation, who is, uh, on behalf of his company, the recipient of the federal dollars to build a brand new reactor here in Ontario. I'm Deb Hutton. Thanks for joining. It's the iHeartRadio Network. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I am Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today. Now, yesterday, we had a pretty significant announcement coming out of what we know, if you do know about it, the Canada Infrastructure Bank. They have finalized agreement with the Ontario Power Generation and committed $970 million towards Canada's first small modular reactor. That is almost a billion dollars and the largest investment in clean power to date. As part of this agreement... OPG is going to be developing a 300-megawatt SMR, also known as a small modular reactor, next to the existing Darlington Nuclear Generating Station in Clarington, Ontario. Joining us to talk about that investment and what it means for the economy, what it means for the environment, is OPG's Ontario Power Generation's Chief Executive Officer, Ken Hartwick, and a longtime friend of mine. Welcome to News Talk Today, Ken. It's, uh, thanks, Devin. It's uh, great to reconnect, and, and thanks for having me on your on your show. So Ken and I worked many years ago, I won't tell you how long ago, at Hydro One, which is Ontario's uh, utility here in the province, and Ken has moved on now to the generating side of the energy world. So first of all, tell us what an SMR is, a small modular reactor. Yeah, it, it is, it's a nuclear uh, reactor that's designed to produce electricity, so 300 megawatts, which, which is roughly 300,000 houses, so there, thereabouts. And it's really a new design in how to build nuclear, I think, in a more cost-efficient way. And that, as the middle word, uh, modular, uh, indicates, you're building a lot more of it in a factory, in a, in a factory type of environment, so that uh, they can be built quicker and cheaper than some of the... Uh, the bigger technologies that uh, that Ontario and Canada have previously built. And over the long term, what would the vision be? Because I know this is part of Ontario Power Generation's plan to get to a net zero carbon footprint, right? Correct. And, and really uh, what our intention is, and this is why the uh, Canadian Infrastructure Bank uh, Agreement was, was incredibly helpful, is to build the first one at our uh, Clarington site and then probably add three more at that same site, uh, help our manufacturers in Ontario and across Canada become uh, proficient in building the technology, and then see where else this takes us in the country and, and perhaps around the world uh, as far as introducing this technology to help many people clean up their electricity grids. So if you had a small modular reactor, such as you're going to start building uh, in Clarington, it would it would service a community like a, a, a would a I don't know, like would a province have it? Would a part of a province had it? Would a city have it? Like how would this function long term if you're in the expansion business after this one's made? Sure. So we'll, like I said, we'll, we'll perfect our process at the Darlington site, but then really think about the size of these is the equivalent to maybe a big hockey arena. Uh, and 
And then you could start to say, are there cities within Ontario or Canada or elsewhere in the world where that is the right size for electric generation that you could put it close to a city and therefore power the city and perhaps you know, shift off of coal, of which Ontario has already done, or natural gas uh, or other technologies that do emit carbon. So the, really, these are, are more right-sized for locational needs versus, you know, the big reactors, which are great that we have at Darlington, that are each reactor would be three times the size of this. So it's, uh, it really does allow for a more localized approach as the technology gets perfected. We're speaking with Ken Hartwick, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Ontario Power Generation, which, of course, by its name, is the major power generation company here in Ontario. We're talking about a federal agreement reached yesterday, announced yesterday, with the Canada Infrastructure Bank that a billion dollars will go towards developing this first small modular reactor. And as the uh, CEO, Ken Hartwick, just pointed out, could be uh, the beginning of an expansion, not only domestically here in Canada, but perhaps for export reasons. So for all those people who are a little bit nervous of nuclear, I'm not one, but for those who are, what is the safety element to this? If you started to, say, have one outside the city of London, outside the city of Ottawa, outside the city of Vancouver, what's the safety element here? Yeah, so, so, do you know what? I, I go into our nuclear plants every week. Uh, we have uh, 6,000 people that go into the plants every week. Uh, they are The plants are incredibly safe. They're clean. They're great environmental stewards. Uh, we know where all the byproducts that, that result from generation, all, they all are. I can go up and touch them, and it's all, all good. So, you know, from a safety standpoint, I think people just, you know, do a little bit of research. It is incredibly safe technology. And, uh, you know, I think everyone's reference point is the Simpsons. Uh, that is not what a nuclear plant is. Uh, like I say, we have 6,000 people go in and out of them every day and love working there. And this will, this will be no different. And don't forget, you know, McMaster University already has a nuclear reactor there. They've had it for a long time in the city of Hamilton. So, it's, uh, so this is a technology that I think if we want to clean up the environment the way all of us do, uh, this is a great technology to participate in that. And this particular modular unit that uh, will ultimately uh, find its home in uh, next to the Darlington Nuclear Station, when will it be built and uh, how much output will it have? Right, so it's, uh, it's meant to be operational uh, by late 2028, so about uh, you know, six years from now. Um, and uh, it will, like I say, produce electricity that would be the equivalent of around 300,000 houses. Uh, in in Ontario, so it, so it's a it's a uh, big machine. It is something that will uh, again help just as we electrify more things, provide that car- non carbon emitting electricity go with it. Uh, but uh, but our intention is to have it operational in 28. And the importance of that is the rest of the world is looking and wants to emulate what we do. And it's a great chance for Ontario nuclear supply chain companies. Uh, to be on the forefront of uh, of a new technology to go along with our already great nuclear technologies that we have in Ontario. Ken Hartwick, I know you're tight for time. Last point, uh, and what does it do for the environment? What is the proposal around this? Yeah, so so it, if you think about nuclear in general, it is non-carbon emitting. So it's, uh, you know, if your choices are as you electrify, obviously Ontario is not going to build more coal plants, uh, but it will reduce the use of natural gas. 
uh, and allow us to move towards electric cars, electrifying buildings, all the things that get talked about at the federal and provincial level as far as reducing emissions. This is going to be one step in a technology that will allow that to happen uh, in a, in, with a great economic impact for the province. Ken Hartwick, thanks so much for joining News Talk today and for filling, filling us in on your latest project. Okay, very good. I appreciate it. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. So coming up after the break, I want to talk term limits for politicians. We just had a municipal election here in Ontario. Uh, BC had uh, its municipal election recently in, in some of its communities. And there's a ton of voter fatigue. There was incredibly low turnout. Ottawa was one of the exceptions here in Canada because they had a, here in Ontario because they had a race, 44%. But other locations, 20% in Kitchener, 21 in Mississauga, 25 in Brampton, 25 in London, 28 in Guelph. Just really, really low numbers. And so you have to think, why is that the case? And I know there's a ton of reasons for it, but I actually believe one of those reasons is because incumbency in municipal politics is such an advantage. And as long as you have an incumbent running, as long as that individual's name recognition is as high as it is in municipal politics, uh, then I think people, particularly at the municipal level, are not going to get out and vote. And so I think it's time for us to turn our attention to term limits. Coming up after the break, I want to hear your thoughts on it. I'll lay out mine Uh one eight five five six three three ten ten. Is it time for us to tell our politicians that they can only be in public service for a limited amount of time? Should we say two terms, you're out, three terms, you're out? Should it be at the federal level, the municipal level, the provincial level, or all three? Give me your thoughts. One eight five five six three three ten ten, or text at seven ten ten. I'm going to lay out for you my thoughts on this topic, why I believe it is time for us to bring in term limits. I do think it will help with voter apathy. I do think it will help overall with our democratic process, including having a higher voter turnout in each of our elections. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And it's actually holding those politicians to account that I want to talk about in this last segment of News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for this week. Term limits. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Like them, hate them. Will they work? Won't they work? What's your thought on us? Give me a call and let me know your your view, and I'll share mine with you. Seven ten ten by text. So a few years ago, I was writing a regular column for a, a political magazine, and a couple of comments by local politicians caught my attention. And I thought, wow, this seems out of touch. One happened to be a school board trustee. One happened to be a counselor, I think in Brampton at the time. It goes back a few years. And so I looked up who these individuals were. I'd never heard of them. And both of them had been in office for 30 years. And I thought, wow, you really can... I think, have 
too much time on your hands in politics when you don't have to work as hard to get reelected. Because in particular at municipal and at the school board level, name recognition incumbency is such a massive factor here in Canada because we largely don't have organized uh, partisan politics at the municipal level. And I don't want to get into a debate about that because there are those who believe we do. But generally speaking, you don't have the same checks and balances that parties have. You don't have to be nominated as the candidate. You don't have to run the risk as you do politically, um, both provincially and federally, that you will get swept out or in, as the case may be, but swept out by a turning tide against your party. We sometimes lose really good people in politics because they just are swept away by sometimes the incompetence of the leader, sometimes the party platform, despite how hard they work and how well they've represented their uh, their constituents. So in my view, we need to look at term limits, not for federal and provincial politicians, because I believe the party system takes care of some extra checks and balances, but at the municipal level, at the school board level, and I would argue at the Senate, but maybe we'll leave that for another topic another day, it's time to bring in term limits. Even John Tory, re-elected for his third term, said this is his last, and he himself believes that three terms, the term limit of in this case, 12 years for those that have a four-year municipal cycle is enough, long enough to do some good work, long enough to to get your feet wet, to understand your constituents, to understand their needs, to get some projects, but not too long to become too cushy, too comfortable, maybe too complacent. And yes, there are those who would argue too corrupt. What's your thought? one 633 1010 Is it time for term limits here in Ontario, here throughout the rest of the country at the municipal level? Let's go to Paul uh, from the beach in Toronto. What do you say, Paul? I think it's a really dumb idea, frankly. Oh, um, okay. Take me on. If you hired somebody and allowed them to train themselves, or you were training them, and they got to the top of their game, and at eight years you said, oh, goodbye. It's silly. Why would you do that? Why would you develop expertise? It takes three years to find the toilet. So I'm with you on that. And and so my proposal would be three term limits. So here in Ontario, for example, where it's four-year terms municipally, that would be 12 years, more than a decade. You don't think that's enough to, to have a, a chance to find the toilet, to understand your constituents' needs, as I said, to get some large projects well underway for your community. You don't think that's more than enough time? No, I, I, ultimately, it's about democracy. I, I'd let, rather let people choose. If people are worn out and broken down and no longer doing their job, the people are going to see that and get rid of them. And listen, we've had some good politicians. Most of us would point to Hazel McCallion, but I and and maybe Gord Krantz, who's just reelected, but he's had twenty-one terms: eight as a councillor and thirteen as a mayor. And the reason I think he gets reelected, obviously his constituents are happy enough with him, but the biggest reason is name recognition. So I say it's time to move on, but let's uh, let's take more of your calls. Scott, Mississauga, what's your view on this? Oh, I think I lost Scott. Let's go to uh, Mike in Mississauga. Mike, term limits at the municipal level or not? Absolutely. Uh, counter to your, your previous caller's point, getting rid of these or establishing term limits also um, it doesn't allow for people to sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, get their tentacles deep into the system. Uh, I lived many years ago in uh, Los Angeles, and I worked. I did some local development there. And I, I really loved the system that they established. Um, I believe it was like around 2000 or something. But they started setting up neighborhood councils. 
And uh, these are really sort of more grassroots style uh, councils. I think there's like a hundred of them now, but uh, they are, they're given term limits. Uh, it's ele- they're elected. I think they sit for it's either a year or two, uh, and they're given a, a budget every year. It's something like thirty thousand or fifty thousand dollars a year or something, and they can do what they want with it um, to a, to an extent, right? Right. Uh, so any projects that the neighborhood wants to do, here's your budget. Um, you know, you want to have a big pizza party for fifty thousand dollars, go and fill your boots. But um, it, it really free. Oh, we lost. We lost our caller. All right, let's go to uh, Steve in Whitby. Steve, term limits for municipal politicians or not? I, I think there's validity to having term limits. I, I think that when you get in there and you learn, and to one of your earlier callers' points, yeah, it does take ter- time to learn the job, especially when you're going through planning and development uh, documents, high-level documents, understanding what the job is, it does take some time to learn. But after 12 years or maybe, you know, 16 years, maybe it's two terms as a local councillor, two terms as a regional councillor, 16 years, you've had an opportunity to leave a mark on your community to help people uh, and then to allow for that rejuvenation. You know, I, I think about leadership contests in federal or provincial politics. Parties need that rejuvenation within themselves and within the province uh, if they're leading a government. So I do think it could work well for our democracy. Um, I, I do think incumbents do have huge advantages in terms of raising money, connection to the community, and the um, understanding what those issues are. But I, I also think, to, you know, on the flip side, there is that benefit of having that connection to the community because you understand what the need is and how to get that done uh, in council. So, Steve, I wasn't going to steal your thunder, but you actually are a councillor. I am. I I was re-elected Monday night. Congratulations. uh, Great town of Whitby, region of Durham. Uh, And there's a lot of great things happening in the community. We're pushing forward on the new hospital uh, that will be located uh, up in Brooklyn. Um, you know, and looking at how we can grow commercial and industrial tax base here, because like a lot of municipalities are strapped for cash and the taxpayer isn't uh, a councillor's piggy bank. Steve, you know, thanks I so much. We're going to have to make those hard decisions. Thank, thank you, Jeff. Oh, thank you so much for calling into News Talk today. We appreciate your insight into this. I'm going to take one quick call from John in Beamsville, because Beamsville's near where I live in Niagara. John, what's your thought on... Uh, term limits for politicians uh well you possibly but i just wanted to pick hole, a poll in your argument that um name recognition helps keep people in because you're from the area and i'm sure you have noticed that uh, there was many incumbents that lost their seats in west niagara grimsby and west lincoln because of their name recognition so i can't you know yeah, you know what? You're right. The I think the the Wayne Fleet mayor lost the incumbent by eight votes. I think I read, which is just the other side of the river to to our place in Wellinport. Thanks for that, John. Uh, I still am going to stand by term limits, but thank you for joining me. I will be back tomorrow for news talk today.